Good morning, everybody. Good, morning. Good to see you all. You should have an outline if you don't already. Uh, you can go over there and get one or someone will pass it out. We are at Luke 23, continuing our series in the book of Luke, coming towards the end. So if you know the background and the reason why a person is acting the way that they are, you will change and adjust how you respond to that person because you know what's going on. And if you didn't know what was going on, you would probably act a different way. In a book I once read, the author told a story of how he made the wrong assumption in the situation. He said he was on the subway, and across from him in the subway car was this disengaged father sitting there, and his unruly children were all around him. And he, he felt like, I should probably stand up and say something to this father. And he goes ahead and he says something that basically you got to take care of these unruly kids. And the father replied to him and said, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, my wife just passed away and we're, we're coming home from the hospital. If you knew the background and reason why people are acting and doing what they're doing, you would respond differently. The title and theme of our section this morning is that same theme. If you knew, you would, and you could see the three points there on your outline. You could write this verse down. It's an important one in the book of Luke, Luke 9, 51. It says this, now when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, Jesus set resolutely to go to Jerusalem. So that was chapter 9. We are in chapter 23. That's 13 chapters before this. Jesus had set his direction, his mission to go to Jerusalem. And over that span of time, we do not see him backing away. He does not procrastinate. He doesn't find a loophole. So what was he planning on when he was resolutely going out to Jerusalem over all these chapters? It was to suffer terribly and die for things he didn't do and to be taken up to heaven. That was his mission. And he moved toward that goal. If you remember last week, Peter, who was up here, helps us to see that when Jesus was put on trial and condemned for something he didn't do, it was not a tragic mistake. Jesus was on his mission and even when he knew what he was doing and he was going to carry it out, his own followers, his own disciples, didn't fully grasp what he was doing. And in this morning's text, we're going to see that many other people surrounding the situation didn't understand either. And we'll look at how they responded and also how they should have responded had they known. If you would Put your attention to Luke 23, verse 26 to 43 as I read it. And just to give you a bit of context, the last thing that had happened before 26 is that an, an actual rebel, an actual murderer was released and Jesus took his place. His name was Barabbas. And then verse 26, as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. 
For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when the wood is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. Then the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that said, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was there, uh, who was hanged, rallied at, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, if you look at your outline, there are three points we're going to cover this morning. If you knew, you would And then the three points. The first one is mourn the right person. We're looking at verses 26 to 31 here. And let's make some observations. So Jesus has been tortured. And now he is going to the place where he's going to be hung up on the cross beam. He's presumably too weak to carry this wooden cross. And so they grab this guy, Simon, to make him do it. And following them in verse 27, in this procession, there's a great multitude of people And there's particularly a group of women who are mourning and lamenting for Jesus on the way to the place of the skull. But what's interesting is in this moment of terrible injustice, right? Jesus didn't deserve this. In verse 28, he shifts the focus away from himself to these women and tells them, do not weep for me, but for yourselves and your children. Why would he do that? He says, in 29, because there's a strange situation that's about to come. He says, the days are coming in verse 29, when people will say basically two phrases that are going to envision this future situation. The first one is in 29. He says, people are going to say, blessed are the barren wombs. Basically, it's going to be a good situation or a situation where people are going to say, it's better not to have children. And in the second one is verse 30 which is a quote from Hosea a few hundred years before the prophet. And it's also quoted in Revelation 6, where people are going to say in this situation, the mountains, the dirt, the rocks fall on us, hide us, cover us up. That's how desperate this is going to be. You don't want a family, you don't want kids, and you want the rocks to hide you. It's a terrible thing that's going to come. And Jesus backs away and talks about perspective in verse 31. He says, if people do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? So, again, alluding to they don't understand what's going on. 
So what does this mean? The author is getting at the same theme that people don't understand what's going on. And remember, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He's going here for this very moment and for this mission. Now, I don't know if you remember, but in Luke 19, when Jesus actually gets to the city, okay, so 10 chapters later, he gets to the city. Do you remember what he says? He says this in 19, verse 41 and 42. And when Jesus drew near, he saw the city, that's Jerusalem. He wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that are made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Again, Jesus is saying, the city, what's going on? People are not realizing what is happening. And had they known, they would respond differently. And so Jesus says in 28 here, do not weep for me. He is on the way to his own death and he's telling other people not to mourn for himself but for them what is he trying to say here he's saying that if they knew they would mourn for themselves and they would respond differently so what may be going on here what what are these women missing jesus is 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 talking about here in these next couple of verses the context of the physical coming judgment against the city of Jerusalem, and he has talked about that before. But this, this judgment is meant to point to something even more terrible, and that is being held account for your sin and, and people rebelling against God and facing God, facing a just God. And when you know that, when you realize that, you will mourn, not for Jesus, but for yourself. See, the author here, the author Luke, wants you to see something very clearly. That Jesus' purpose is to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 53, written a thousand years before. This is about the suffering servant who takes the place of those who are actually guilty, even though he is not. And let me give you a quick summary of how we got to this place in Luke. A few weeks ago, if you remember Ryan's sermon from up here, where Jesus at the Last Supper told his disciples to go get some swords. That's kind of odd. Why would he ask them to go get swords? And in that, in that same paragraph, he quotes Isaiah 53, that he is going to be numbered with the transgressors or the rebels. And when Jesus is arrested, he asks the people, am I leading a rebellion? And when the religious priests take Jesus to, the, to, um, to Pilate, who's the Roman governor. Uh, They tell him that Jesus was subverting the nation. And then when Pilate goes back to them later on in, in 2314, this was brought up last week, he tells them, you brought me this man who is one who is inciting people to rebellion. Again, there's this theme of the rebel, the rebellion. And of course, last week, Barabbas, who was the actual rebel, gets exchanged for Jesus, who's not. So, if you knew Jesus' mission, you would understand that he is purposely taking on the role of the rebel. And if you do not first mourn and weep for yourself because of the guilt and shame you have racked up, then you are in danger of responding the wrong way, responding in ignorance and missing what Jesus is doing. And he wants his audience 
to understand clearly the warning here. Unless you repent of your sin, your ignorance may lead you to the point where you're saying these words. That you are in such dread that you want the mountains to cover you up because there is no place to hide. If they knew, they wouldn't weep and mourn for Jesus. He was on his mission, but they would recognize their desperation, weep over their sin and the coming judgments. All right, let's think about this. How does this apply to us today? The application that Jesus gives to them is the same for us. We need to weep for ourselves and weep for others. Let's consider ourselves. The way that we weep and mourn for ourselves starts by examining our own heart and examining what we believe. Consider these questions. What do you think the purpose of life is? How do you battle the challenges to your faith in a life beyond death? Do you think about these things? Or do you rest on other people to think about these things for you? Consider what if you are living in ignorance to true reality. Mourn and weep for yourself. Take a hard look at why you believe what you believe. For me, I've been trying to uh, do, as Paul says, to fight this good fight of faith. The Apostle Paul calls it that. And as you know, it's very hard, especially when times where you feel like God is far away or when it doesn't feel like you even want to fight. You don't even want to wrestle through your faith. And in those moments when my faith is challenged, I have to ask myself the question, do I really believe in Jesus? And it's helpful to consider the the alternative, that there's no God and there is no hope beyond death. And I don't know about you, but that thought terrifies me. That shakes me to my core. If I were to give up on Jesus, I would have nowhere to go. And without this Savior who makes this promise of this exchange, the guilty for the not guilty, I would have no hope because of my sin. I feel this desperation and I'm broken. You have to get to this place. You have to mourn over your own sin. Otherwise, you'll never understand why Jesus came and you'll never follow him. Mourn and weep for yourself. And then also mourn and weep for others. This means that you see people from a different point of view. They're not just fellow humans, but they are our fellow humans that have eternal souls. You see people differently. And you need to care about them as Jesus cares about them. Care enough to, to take initiative, to build a friendship, to listen to their point of view, and to invite them to explore why Jesus did what he did with you. I want to ask you to consider and think of one, one thing here, or two things, actually. One is that who is someone that's on your heart and mind that you can care for today? Just make it simple. Who is someone that you can care for and take initiative towards to show them the love and care of Jesus, even today? And secondly, 
as you are reaching out to them, getting to know them, listening to where they're at, why they believe what they believe, they will probably ask you, hopefully ask you, why do you believe what you believe? In 1 Peter 3.15, you can write that verse down and read it. He encourages and tells his audience, you have to know the answer to that question. Why do you believe? Why are you a Christian? Why do you follow Jesus? Make sure that you know the answer to that question. Maybe I'll even ask you after the service here, and we can chat about it. Why do you believe in Jesus? Make sure you can answer that when others ask you. So we need to mourn for ourselves and mourn for others. Secondly, if we knew, point two, we would tell Jesus not to save himself. Verses 32 to 39. So the, the character uh, characters here shift from the insiders uh, mourning for Jesus to those who are mocking Jesus, the outsiders scoffing at him. And there are three different uh, groups of people, and there are three different verbs be- used. So the rulers, they scoff at Jesus in verse 35. And the sense here is that they're turning their noses up to him. Ha! You could think of that that way. Then there's the soldiers in verse 36 who mock him. And of course, there's the criminal in verse 39 who's railing at Jesus or he's hurling insults at Jesus. Now, what's interesting, there's three different people, three different verbs, but they all say the same thing, the exact same thing. They say, save yourself if you are the Christ. This mocking phrase, save yourself. And in verse 35, they even admit that he had saved others, so they almost kind of have a point. But we'll get to that in a minute. This verbal mocking of Jesus is not the only mockery that's happening in this passage. If you look at verse 34, the soldiers steal his clothes and they make sport of it, leaving Jesus empty and exposed. They offer him sour wine. And in verse 38, they put a mocking crime above his head. This is the king of the Jews. And in all of this mockery, we get a sense of Jesus's perspective. Verse 34 Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, there is some controversy over those words. Uh, Are they authentic or not? But regardless, it fits the theme that Jesus is doing this on purpose, even though people don't realize what he's actually doing for them. Jesus is focused on serving, even though they're focused on mocking. What does this mean? It means that these three groups of people shouldn't be saying, save yourself. They should be saying, don't save yourself. Don't do it. In verse 35, it says, he saved others. Let him save himself if. Okay, I said they had a logical point there, but it's a flawed point because they don't understand. They're missing the entire point of what he's doing. Now, with, now, consider this for a minute here. Imagine that there's a family that goes on a boating trip. And so there's a bunch of people there, maybe a bigger family. There's people there, and there's rough water. And a child falls into the water, and they're drowning. And the father sees that the child is drowning, 
and he jumps into the water to save them. And the water is so rough that he has to hold the child above his head. He has to drown himself to save the child. And what ends up happening is that he dies, the child lives. You may have heard real-life stories like this. I know it has happened. I've heard of some of them. But what if we were to rewind the clock a little bit where they were both still alive and there are people watching the scene go down? What if they were to say to that father, save yourself. You know how to swim. I've seen you do it. Save yourself. Like in the point above, people do not see that they are the ones who need to be rescued. They need to mourn for themselves. They need to see that unless Jesus goes through with this plan, they don't have a chance of being rescued. They need to understand this substitution that's going on. And instead of saying, save yourself, they need to say, don't save yourself. Stay up on that cross. Don't come down. Complete your mission. Please, or else I will have no hope. My sin is so great, and if you don't become my salvation, one day I will be in such terror they will ask the mountains to hide me from judgment. These mockers wanted Jesus to prove it. But what was he doing in this exact moment? He was proving it right in front of their very eyes, and they were blind. He was in the process of rescuing them from death, and they were mocking him. How does this apply to us today? If you knew, you would first mourn for your sin, and secondly, you would be humbled and overwhelmed by this love shown to you. Imagine that you were at the base of this, uh, this little mound here called the skull, and you were watching this all go down, what you would see is a picture of what your sin costs and what it, what it looks like to have it paid for. And this is just a, an interesting point of conjecture, though, but imagine if Barabbas was there. You know, he was guilty as guilty could be, and he's let free. Where did he go after that? Did he go to watch the scene? of this man who took his place? We don't know. But Jesus' death was enough to cover Barabbas' sin, your sin, and my sin. And since you now know why Jesus came, and you know he did not get down from the cross, he did not save himself, the question becomes, how do you respond? How do you respond to Jesus? Do you allow him to take your life in exchange for his? How do you respond to Jesus? And then secondly, how do you respond when other people sin against you? Do you have the heart of forgiveness that extends and flows from what Jesus has done for you? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you say to Jesus, don't save yourself. You are my only hope. Now, this brings us to our third point. If you knew, you would bank 
on a 13th hour save. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But let's make some observations here. We are in verses 40 to 43 primarily. We're going to look at the three crosses. So uh, Luke here is the only gospel author that has this particular story here at the end. And you know what that means, right? It means it's important. If you look back at verse 32 for a second, it says that there were two others, two criminals. And it says that Jesus is in the middle of these criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Now, this is probably a little bit more significant than you realize, at least it was for me. Remember the promise of Isaiah 53. I made reference to it earlier, where there's going to be the suffering Savior who is not guilty, who gives his life for the guilty so they can be free and the, the slate white clean and they get a new life. He's going to be numbered with the transgressors. And what you have right here is Jesus actually being numbered. He is criminal number two. Number one, number two, he's in the middle, and number three. Again, it's plausible that Barabbas, the guy who was actually guilty, was supposed to be criminal number two that day. And Jesus took his place. And as they're all hanging up there, one of the criminals... Verse 39 is railing against Jesus. But the other criminal, ironically, is the only person in this passage who seems to understand and get what's going on. He rebukes the other criminal in verse 40. Don't you fear God since we are under the same condemnation? And he says in verse 41, he points out who's really guilty. We are the ones receiving the due rewards for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now notice what this guy, this other criminal doesn't say. He doesn't say to Jesus, Jesus, I know you're innocent. Please use your power to, to right this wrong and, and, and get us out of this unjust situation. Or at least you get out of this situation. No, he doesn't say that. He sees what's really going on and looks ahead to this real miracle that's happening. And he says in verse 43 something that I wouldn't have expected him to say. He makes a request, not for their current circumstance, but for after their death. That's his request. After they die. And in verse 43, Jesus acknowledges that this guy gets it by saying three truths. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. So today, there is no delay for this, this being fulfilled. He says, with me, this guy will be with Jesus, who is alive, and they're going to have this relationship. And then in paradise, tells us that there is this new life, this new existence, this new world that is out there. What does this mean? Hopefully it's been clear so far that this section is about if people knew what was going on, they would have the proper response compared to those who did not know what's going on. Consider this. What, what does everybody in this passage want Jesus to do or are they implying Jesus to do? Except for the last guy. What do they want? They want some kind of last minute pull the rabbit out of the hat miracle for Jesus to do. And that would be very dramatic, wouldn't it? For him to unleash his power at this moment 
before he dies and, and right all the wrongs and, and get those bad guys. How amazing would that be? And you probably know that feeling of that last minute turnaround and the exhilaration that that feels like. Just about four years ago, I was trying to think, Becky said, give an example. I'm like, okay, here's one, sports. Four years ago, you guys, if you're into sports, Penn State was playing Ohio State. Penn State was unranked. They had not beaten Ohio State for years. Ohio State was ranked number two in the nation. Low chances that Penn State's going to beat Ohio State. Penn State was, looks like they were going to lose the game. Right at the end of the game, Ohio State's going to kick the field goal basically to seal the victory. Remember what happened? They blocked the kick, and it bounced just perfectly into the guy's hands. And he ran all the way down, and he tripped. They was going to make it to the end zone. Maybe, ah, 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 and then he did. And then everybody cheered, and there were riots and so forth. So this is what people call a last-minute save or an 11th-hour victory. It's that last-minute rescue or the change of events or the, the, before the time runs out, before the door of opportunity closes, there's some kind of rescue. And yet this criminal, he doesn't ask for that. He doesn't ask for that last-minute rescue. Of course, he would want Jesus to change his circumstances, but what he's focused on is receiving and accepting what Jesus is doing. And by his request to remember him after he dies, he's demonstrating his faith in Jesus' mission. And since he knows, he asks not for the 11th hour save, but for the 13th hour save. This guy was, was going to die within a few hours. He knew what he deserved. He was staring death right in the face. And he had to face his fears, his regrets, his pains. What could he possibly do in that moment to, like, do anything? The only thing that he could do was believe. And the author, Luke, wants his audience to understand this clearly. This is what faith in Jesus looks like. Despite your circumstances, what faith looks like is you bank your hope, your life, your salvation on Jesus' rescue. This 13th hour save when the clock has run out. You have to know that Jesus' mission is about the 13th hour save, not the 11th hour one. Now, what does this look like for us? If we knew Jesus' mission, we would first mourn for ourselves. Second, we would ask Jesus, don't get off the cross because you're my only hope. And then thirdly, we bank our entire life on this 13th hour save. Now, I don't know your circumstances. You might be praying, wishing, hoping that they change for an 11th hour kind of save. And I'm not saying don't ask about that. Certainly ask God for help. And he may grant that to you. But the promise that we have that is rock solid is this 13th hour save. You can bank on the fact that if you trust in Jesus with your life, you have hope and life beyond death. And a, this is a life that you didn't earn, but a life that's being offered to you by Jesus. And it's this belief 
that will impact your circumstances and help you to interpret them. I think one, one moment for me that this uh, uh, has really come to bear, uh, I just think of a theme. There's uh, several times last year that I was uh, really struggling with my faith. The circumstances that I was facing, I really did not like. I hated them. And I was questioned whether it was worth it to be a Christian. Is this even worth it? And if not for this hope beyond the grave, I wouldn't continue. I, at least I don't think I would continue. And you're probably the same, that in times of desperation, when we really want our circumstances to change, get me out of this situation. It's those times, perhaps more than others, that we have a greater clarity on what really matters. Are you banking on a 13th hour save? So that when the clock runs out, you know your team will win. And when that day comes, you know that you will hear Jesus say, today you are with me in paradise. It is this kind of saving that matters most. So if you knew you would bank on a 13th hour save. So in conclusion here, to summarize this message, I thought it would be best to leave you pondering a question, and I'll get to that in a minute. But let's summarize. Jesus is numbered with the, the transgressors. He's numbered with the criminals, the rebels. This was his mission. And in this moment, in this story, he's in the middle, criminal number two, one on his left, one on his right. Both of these guys were in close proximity to Jesus. They were both on the same hill called the skull. Their proximity to Jesus didn't save them from their circumstances. It didn't even save them from their sin, you know, just not, not automatic forgiveness by being close to Jesus. One of the guys wanted Jesus to show off a miracle and change his circumstances. The other, however, knew what was going on, what Jesus' mission was, and he asked for life. Now, here's my question. Now that you know that why Jesus came, which criminal best represents you and your heart? Let's pray. God, thank you for this, this word that, that clearly tells us, Jesus, that, that you forgive sin, that you want us to come to you, that we have to examine our own hearts and we have to realize what you did and why you did it. Help us to never let go of the hope that is in Jesus. Forgive us for our sin. Uh, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.